This morning we're going to dive back into 1 Samuel. We're coming to the close of this book. It probably seems like we've been in it for a little while, but uh, we're at chapter 30 here of 1 Samuel, and next week we'll wrap up with 1 Samuel 31. But this week, I think, is, is a vital part of the story that we're continuing to walk through in 1 Samuel, that it is a story of hope, it's a story of restoration, it's a story of reconciliation, and it's a story that starts out with tremendous despair, that God can take a situation where we despair, where we're hopeless, and we can rest in Him knowing that He is the restorer of all things. If we think about different times in your life just for a moment and that we've had, have you ever had just a time in your life where you thought things were really bad? And then as you considered them, what you thought was bad was not all that bad because they got worse. And then you figured that has to be kind of the last straw, but then there was another straw on top of that straw that broke that straw, right? Well, that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today, at least in the beginning. It are seasons in life where things are bad and they seem to get worse, and on top of it, they seem to get even worse than that. It's kind of like that idea of hitting bottom, but you really don't know how sturdy that bottom floor is. It's like falling off a 10-foot roof onto a plywood floor, and then you realize the plywood's cracked, and you fall another five stories. Oh, and by the way, you lay there for 30 seconds, think about it, and then realize that that plywood's cracked, and you fall another five stories. The day gets worse, right? I was watching a video that my son was showing me, and it's, it's a comical kind of a satire sketch of a, of a goalie in a soccer game. Some of you guys have probably seen this, but the goalie continues to get kicked in the face and block the ball with his face over and over and over again to the point that the coaches just believe that he's going to stop the goal, so they drag him back onto the field and put him on a chair and the announcers go, well, there's absolutely no way that the, the team is actually going to miss this goal. And the guy kicks and knocks the guy right in the face again as he's sitting in the chair, right? Some of us can feel that way at times in our life. Like it just gets worse and it gets worse and it worse. But First Samuel has hope for us. And it's not just a hope that is hopeful in times of despair but it's hopeful that also, too, that God takes us out of our own muck and our own mire and has the ability to store what we see as unredeemable. So we're going to be diving into 1 Samuel here, and I, I want to approach this a little bit differently. It's a larger passage this morning, and so I'm not going to have us stand up and read that this morning. And so... I'm going to give Joni a little break. You don't have to follow along with me scripture-wise on this, okay? And so I'll read you the passage as we go through it this morning. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along with us. But at the heart of the passage this morning is that reconciliation with God enables us to experience His seemingly impossible and abundant restoration, Reconciliation with God enables us to experience his seemingly impossible restoration. I want to encourage you on your notes to circle that word enables. Because what it's enabling is impossible restoration. It takes what is seemingly impossible and makes it possible. Now as we've come to this story in 1 Samuel this morning... We dive in where we have a picture here for a moment of David coming back to the city of Ziklag. And David has been in a place where he's been fighting not for the Israelites, David as the anointed king of Israel, but he's actually moved in with the Philistines. He moves into the land of the Philistines. If you recall in chapter 27, he 
he's actually in despair and he feels like his life is going to perish because Saul is unrelenting, Saul, the current king of Israel, and he's chasing after him and he just finally says, listen, my life's up and he's fearful of what Saul is going to do and he takes things into his own hands and he trusts in his own sufficiency and he goes into this foreign land. In fact, he goes into this foreign land and he makes allies with the leader of the Philistines, Achish. And Achish actually refers to David as his servant forever. Well, something interesting happens. In chapter 29, David is getting ready to go to battle against the Israelites, the nation of which he is the anointed king. And he is fighting, for whatever reason, he has decided that he's going to fight against his own people. And we're told in chapter 29, verse 4, it says this, it says, but the commanders of the Philistines were angry with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man, that is David, back that he may return to the place to which you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to the Lord? Would it not be the heads of the men here? So these basically pagan Philistine commanders are looking at it going, listen, there is no way that David is going to fight against his own people. In fact, it says, is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They're reminding Achish of who David really is. And yet, that actually wasn't David's motive. These pagan commanders actually see that David is so out of alignment with the God that he claims to serve. But what they don't know is they don't know what in the world's going on. And they're like, listen, this guy who they sing about that kills his ten thousands, we don't want any part of him. Because what he's going to do in our mind is he's going to turn on us and he's going to kill us. And he's going to present our heads to his God to reconcile with his God. We know in chapter 29 that David is sent home and David is sent home away from the Philistine army and he's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. And so we're told here in chapter 30, verse 1, it says, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, that is the city that had been given to him by the Philistines for the Israelites, on the third day the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So think about this. David returns in a confused state. He's told he can't fight for the Philistine army. He believes that Saul is going to kill him, that at some point he's going to die. And he returns to this area of Ziklag. Now, when he arrives in Ziklag with his men, the city of Ziklag is burned. It's been raided by the Amalekites. And not only is it burned, but his wives, his family, and all of the men's families have been removed from the city. In fact, they've not only taken them, but they've taken all their possessions. So these men who have gone into battle, who are ready to fight, who were distressed, begin to weep for their families. They weep over what has been lost. 
And yet we're told in that moment that that wasn't bad enough for David. That David had been in the state of wanting to serve with the Philistine army. He's confused. He's let go. He has no idea what's going on. He believes he's going to die. He has no direction about how God is actually going to make him king of Israel if he's dead, right? And then his family is lost. It doesn't get much worse than that. But for David, it did. We're told in verse 5 that David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. And it goes on and tells us why. It says, For the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So David had led them into this foreign land. And they were bitter in soul and they wanted to stone David. That word distressed in Hebrew is the word yatsar. And yatsar literally means to bind. It doesn't really encompass the fullness in English of that word distressed. What it's saying is, is he was entrapped He was in bondage, and that bondage was producing despair. He didn't see a way out. He didn't see that there was a way out. He was trapped in it. And so what does he do? Well, in this moment, David had hit his bottom. He had bounced off the bottom floor, And what does he do? Rather than turning to his own sufficiency as he does in chapter 27, he turns and strengthens himself in the Lord. You can imagine here for a moment that the original audience was looking at this going, what's going to happen to David? As they read this, wondering what's the difference between David and Saul? Why is it that we're being told that Saul will lose his kingdom? Why is it that we're being told that Saul has had the kingdom ripped from him? And yet what we see here is the difference between Saul and David is who they turn to. You see, Saul turned to himself He consistently did not want to wait on the Lord. He consistently rebelled against the word of God. We see that in 1 Samuel 15. But even recently, we see it in 1 Samuel 28 when he said, the voice of God is silent. And he turns towards a medium rather than towards the living God in repentance. David, on the other hand, turns towards God, the living God for strength What's the difference between people who sin with the same things? What's the difference between two liars? Maybe nothing. But there could be something. It's who we turn to. Do we turn to ourself and find our self-sufficiency, or do we turn to Christ and find sufficiency in him? And so what we begin to see in this passage is a picture of impossible restoration becoming possible. David had no idea what had happened to his family. All David knows is that the choices he's been leading to have actually caused him to lose his family, to lose his position, even to the point that his friends are now looking to kill him. So what does he do? He turns to God. And so what we have here then is the blessing of God's restoration beginning to occur in David's life. David, entrapped in sin, turns to the living God for strength. You see, restoration begins with reconciliation. It begins with reconciliation. What do we mean by that? Well, verse six, as we just said, 
It says, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people, bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. He turns towards God. That's what repentance is. It's a changing of heart and mind that says, listen, no longer am I gonna go my way diving into the things that I desire, but I'm gonna turn back towards God. It's a shift of direction, a changing of heart. That's repentance. Repentance acknowledges that I am a sinner, I've walked in sin, and I've been walking in sin, and I've been doing it in my own sufficiency. And repentance says, I can no longer do it in my own sufficiency, and I have to turn towards God. So turning towards God, that's repentance. Andrew McLaren says this, he said, David could no longer say my house, my city, or my possessions, but he could say my God. God was the only one left for him to turn to. You see, in our lives, whether it's sin or whether It's the effect of sin that we've had and the choices that we've made or whether it's somebody else's sin affecting us. We have to start by turning towards God. Restoration begins with reconciliation. The step is key. Too often we hear that the the call to say simply believe in Jesus and simply believe that God will lead you through and have confidence in that. And that is true if you have repented. But if you have no change of mind or heart to follow the Lord, guess what? That belief that you're believing in, while it is true, it is powerless because you are sitting unsubmitted to a holy God that is a jealous God that vies for your attention 100 What's the second aspect of reconciliation that we see here? Well, we see this in verse 7 through 10. It says, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. That second part of reconciliation is seeking the will of God through the priest. It's faith. You see, we have a priest. The ephod was brought. It was the, the garment that, was, that the priest wore that We don't know how it entirely works, but the ephod gave authority for them to hear from the Lord. David sought in submission the will of God through the priest. We have a priest today. We have a perfect priest. His name is Jesus. And at the heart of reconciling with God is our seeking of that priest, Jesus Christ. That Jesus himself both bears testimony to the will of God and is the manifestation of the will of God. That he died for our sin. That that sin was buried and he was risen again so that we might have life in him. What we're seeing here is a picture of the gospel right at the beginning. We want to experience restoration in our lives. It begins with the gospel. Jesus said, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, listen, in essence, repent and believe. That's what reconciling is to ourselves to God. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5 says this. It says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given 
at the proper time. Who's our mediator today? It's Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Experiencing the restoration of God begins with being reconciled to God. It begins with being reconciled to God. I remember as a young man wanting God to make my plans his. And I remember thinking through that of what it was going to take for the Lord to change my mind. And let's just say, it took a lot of slapping upside the head. A loving God who was disciplining his son because I was choosing to walk in rebellion. Being restored begins with being reconciled in God. But then there's this piece here that we see with David that's unique. When we are reconciled to God through repentance and faith, faith that Jesus is the true Messiah, that Jesus is the only way. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father but through me, that what he is saying is true. Now what do we do? Well, guess what? What we see David do is this. We see that David actually has faith and walks in his way. Because God is the one who provides the way. God is the one who provides the way to restoration. This is key. Think about this for a moment. David is told to go and obey. That it says here that he's told to go out. It says, pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Now think about that for a minute. Where's David supposed to go? It just says pursue. David doesn't yet know where he's supposed to go. He just knows that he's supposed to set out and start moving. Now for those of you who are like me that are planners, I want to know where the destination is. I want to know what's down the road, right? In fact, I'm one of those guys that still, as much as I use GPS, I still would prefer a paper map. Yeah, because you can see what the end point is. And if the GPS goes dead, you can find your way. Right? David here instead actually walks with faith. He trusts that God is the one providing the way. He trusts that when God says pursue, set out, that he should set out and that God will be the one that leads. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Whoa. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Who's making 
straight paths? It's God. Because guess what? Sometimes when we have the map, we just go. And we go in our own strength. See, he adds this in Proverbs 3. He says, but be wise not in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Here's the thing. If we trust that God has provided the way to restoration, guess what? It'll be healing to our bones and refreshment to our souls. He's saying, you don't have to continue to be anxious. You don't have to continue to be worried. But he is saying, guess what? Stay outside of what I'm directing, and you should be. Why do we follow the hard things in Scripture? We follow the hard things in Scripture because it says it's God's way. And in God's way, we can rest and be refreshed. In God's way, he works it out according to his will. Let's be honest. There are a lot of ways that when we look at God's word, it doesn't seem like it's going to work. I mean, think about the most popular one. I mean, it's the one we talk about a lot, right? Turn the other cheek. For most of us, we get punched in the face. I mean, I get hit with a ball in the face and I'm angry, right? Somebody takes a fist to my face, the thought of actually turning my cheek is not what comes to mind, right? And yet, we're told that a kind word does what? Turns away wrath, right. What did you say, Jeff? Did you say? Yeah, yeah. Puts cool water on coals, right? That doesn't seem in our culture like the way to go. And yet it does. It's in God's ways that seem so foreign to us that God works. How does loving those who are in sin actually work? How does love be both compassionate and tough? And yet it works. See, when we trust God, God does his work. But we have to lean on not our understanding, but his. We have to allow him to make our paths straight. I love this quote by Oswald Chambers. He says this, and I think it's just very simply put, faith never knows where it's being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading Faith never knows where it's being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. We can try to control all the circumstances we have, but it will be nothing. Nothing. Apart from Christ. We have to trust that God's ways are right. And we have to trust that Experiencing his restoration means doing it his way, not our own. It means having the hard conversations. It means speaking the truth in love. It means repenting when needed and confronting when needed. And it means placing our faith in Christ when we desperately want to control our own situation. A third thing about the blessing of God's restoration is that it's his victory is complete and abundant. His victory is complete and abundant. God takes what is ultimately broken and seemingly impossible to redeem and he is able to do it. If you're entrapped in sin and you see the consequences as being so devastated that nothing good could ever come, you're being deceived. 
if you believe that there is a situation that is too far outside the scope of God's reach, you're being deceived. It does not mean that God will restore it in the way that we want it to be restored. It does mean that his restoration will be complete and abundant. It will overflow in ways that we possibly can't imagine. Growing up in a home where my parents divorced when I was 13, I can remember pleading with God, just keep them married. My heart was devastated. And I remember for years wondering, God, what good did you ever really bring out of this? And I can't tell you everything that God has restored as a result of that, but what I can tell you is this. I encountered God in ways that I don't know that I would have before, in a presence and closeness that only God surrounded me in those dark moments. I can tell you that God has given me compassion in ways that I never had before towards those who were walking through it. I can tell you that in ministry, some 25 years later, God has used that experience to shape how we walk with others through that. I can remember sitting with children who have gone through that and just sitting next to them and remembering what they felt like and telling them there is a God that loves them and he will work this for their good as we walk in faith with them. It's hard to hear, it's hard to see. And at other times, just to be quiet with them. Just to be near. God doesn't give us a lot that is trite. Sometimes we just need to be sitting and being present with others. I can also tell you this. I've seen the power of entrapment of sin. And I've seen the beauty of repentance. I've seen God work in ways and provide for ways through the body of Christ that I would have never experienced otherwise. Growing up in the home church that I was in, I had a group of about six or seven men that came around my life in my teen years and were men of tremendous influence and godly influence in my life. Men who took care and helped me learn how to work on cars, and I'm not good. You guys know me, I'm not a mechanic nor am I very mechanical. But I had men in our church that came and said, these are the basic things you need to know and taught me. I had men that shaped and provided and came over and worked with me. I had men that discipled me. I saw what it meant to inherit the family of God in a deep and personal way that allowed me to see the church, the body of Christ coming around to build up those within. Things that I would have probably not experienced otherwise. God may have done it in different ways, but I know that there was good that God has brought as we've walked in faith. See, speaking of God's restoration, Deuteronomy 30, one through five says, and when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Do not believe that if you are entrapped in sin that you are too far away from the blessing of God. You're not. It may look different than you desire, but God is able to restore. And if you're walking through and experiencing the effects of other sin in the way that these men who were following David were, know that 
every situation is redeemable. It too may look different. But his restoration is near as we seek him. You see, what David never really realized was that God had plucked him away from the Philistine army. That it was actually in God's grace that he removed him so that he would not have to fight against the people that he was supposed to be king over. So that he wouldn't have to put a hand against God's current anointed in Saul. And it was in that grace that God continued to break David down and David turned to the Lord. What's God doing in your life right now? Where's God working and breaking and sifting? I want to encourage you. It's easy to look at other sin. And it's hard to look at our own. But in all things, God has something for us to grow into. And where are you allowing God to sift your heart so that it might crumble in those areas that we so desperately seek to protect? And what God is saying is in those areas that we are desperately seeking to to, to protect, as soon as those areas are crumbling, God's restoration is waiting. But it starts with us letting those things down. See, it says in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21, listen to how it describes the restoration and victory of God. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, Think about that for a minute. David goes into town. It says here in verse 16, And when he'd taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. Nothing. I would say that that's a great example of Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. David had to believe that some of his stuff had already been taken and plundered. David had to believe it. There was no way that he was going to recover it. He was just happy getting his wives back. And yet, these 400 men go and destroy this band of Amalekites. And then they get everything back. Not a thing was missing. That's amazing. That's the God that we serve. A God who restores abundantly. A God whose victory is complete. And it says, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. The great thing about this is that the level of God's restoration is not based upon a position, but it's based upon faithfulness. It's based on humble faithfulness, not our position. It's easy, isn't it, sometimes to hear how God redeems situations as you step back and go, I don't see it. Why doesn't it happen to me that way? Sometimes we can think, well, it must just be that that person has something else that I don't. God's restoration is based upon humble faithfulness, not our position. This is not an example of David being restored by God because he is king. Yes, God is restoring his king and actually showing us that he is going to be a king who is worthy of the kingship that God has placed over the land of Israel. Not one who is actually doing things in his own strength, but now who has seen the effect of his own decisions 
trusting in his own sufficiency, and now is turning to God. Now we know that David is not perfect, that he will make mistakes, that he will fail. We know that he actually commits murder, and he commits adultery. And yet, where does he turn? He turns to God. He turns to his Lord. And the Lord restores him. Now there's an interesting thing about David. We're told later on that when David asked to build in 2 Samuel the temple for Yahweh or for God, God says no because you've shed too much blood. Now I believe that that blood that he's speaking about is that time that he had with the Philistines where there was a slaughter, where he became more of a butcher, where his focus became not on honoring God, but on honoring himself. And so it does not mean that the restoration is void of consequence. But it does mean that God is able to freely pour out his blessing over our life. And it does mean that he is working to redeem those things which have been lost. But it begins with that humility. It begins by acknowledging that nothing is ours, that it's all God's. He says in verse 21 through 25, after these worthless men, it says, then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. He's talking here about the men who stayed back, who were too exhausted to go into battle. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. God's spoil and restoration is not saved for a a small set of few, but is granted to all, to all those who repent and believe on him, to all those that turn and trust in his way, not their own way, to those that are ready to receive his complete and abundant victory. And that's the beauty of his restoration is it is not based on our position, our role, or our responsibility, but it is based upon the humble faithfulness by which we walk with God. And more importantly, it is based upon his humble faithfulness towards us. Think about that. We can sometimes think about and go, gosh, man, humility is tough here. I feel like I deserve this. I worked hard for it. I went into battle for it. I put my life on the line for it. I should get more. And God's going, wait a second here. You want to talk about humility? I came off my throne for your sake. You want to talk about death and battle? I did it for you. And you're the one that reaps the reward. In the same way, God's restoration is poured out among those who have reaped the reward of his faithfulness by walking in faithfulness and in humility, the acknowledgement that what we have, everything we have, is of God. The victory we experience, the restoration we experience, the abundance we experience is all from God. And it begins and ends with him. The final piece here then and we see this in verse 26 through 31 we're told that when David came to Ziklag he sent part of the spoil to his friends the elders of Judah saying here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord the blessing of God's restoration is mended relationships mended relationships. See, David gives freely to those whom he had broken relationship. It is tough to have relationship where there is no repentance. It's tough to have relationship where there is no faith 
that Christ can redeem. And this is why it is so important that we understand that restoration begins with reconciliation. God can only restore that which is broken when we repent and when we have faith in him. It's through that that we begin to see that it's his way and not our way. When we're trying to set the rules, all we're doing is trusting in our own sufficiency. But humility says, my ways stink. I thought they were good, but they haven't led to what I thought they would. Victory can only come through Jesus. It's one of the reasons that when we look at our lives and we try to find solutions for why we sin and understand our sin, it can be a very dangerous thing, and I'll tell you why. Because Scripture tells us why. Our hearts are easily deceived. And we can be, begin to believe that we're totally noble by trying to understand our sin when in fact what God is wanting us to do is to repent of it. And then after we actually repent of it, he can work through those things in our life which may actually be drawing us into that sin. But it's only through Christ that we can have victory. Mended relationships we see are part of the outworking of God's restoration. It does not mean that they will go back to where they once were but it does mean that you are free to bless them in that process. David, once he saw God's victory and restoration in his life, immediately went to those who were his friends, the elders of Judah, and presented them gifts from his own spoil. He was able to give freely to those with whom he had broken relationship You see, the outworking here is unity, not war and bitterness. Just days before, David was able and desiring to go to war against these very men that he just gifted with the spoils of his victory. When David turned towards God and strengthened himself in God and then pursued his will, It leads him to a place of humility, a growing humility that allows him to see that this relationship needs to be mended because of me. And as a result, David gifts those towns, those places, the elders of those cities which had already been plundered by the Amalekites and spoils were given freely to them for the building up of them individually and for the building up of their own town, as it would appear here. In Ephesians 4, 7 and 8, we're told this. It says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. When we come to Christ, when we turn to Christ, The work of Christ is not finished at that point. And he does not say, great, you are restored now, then figure it out on your own. What he says is, come to me. Come to me. I have given you the way. Follow my word. Follow my word. Do it what I say. And know that the victory will be mine and your restoration will be abundant. And it won't be based upon who you are, but it will be based upon my faithfulness and your faithfulness to me. And oh, by the way, I'm going to restore those relationships that you thought were once broken. Because I'm going to give to you freely. And we have a Savior who gives to us freely to this day. 
And that is part of his restoration, is that as he is restoring to us, he is giving us his grace freely every single day. And that's why we can say that each morning has new mercies, because the God that we serve is a God of abundant grace. And so may we understand and know that there is no sin that we're too far from repenting and returning and being restored. And there is no one sin that have taken us too far from experience his restoration and power if we simply seek him and trust in him. And may we be a people who are humbled by his abundant victory and his abundant gift giving in his grace. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks that we can look at 1 Samuel and we can see the power that we have in you. Not that comes anything from us, but only from you living within us. May we rejoice knowing that your restoration is complete when it begins with a reconciliation with you. And Lord, may we never see ourselves as too far gone outside the scope of your grace, but know that you are a God who is waiting for us to turn towards you and be reconciled towards you. So Father, this morning, if our hearts are wondering what this reconciliation really is, may we take to heart your word that says, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. May we be a people who are repenting people, but more than that, God, may we be a people who live by faith, trusting in you completely. Father, for those who may not have experienced salvation, may they ponder the things of what it really means to repent and put their faith in this Savior who's died for them and died for us. And we ask this in your name. Amen.